So both Nick and I are related to people who collect World War II tanks. You're kidding. That's a true true statement. (laughs) Where are these tanks housed? I grew up on a uh, uh, bison ranch in southern Missouri, so about an hour and a half south of of St. Louis. On my uh, dad's side of the family, all veterans going through many generations. So we had a lot of zest and zeal for uh, collecting memorabilia. So my my friends always joked that I was in the the Missouri militia, the the equipment that we had down there. But it was always a good time, particularly when we were of age to to utilize it. My cousins are are reenactment guys, and so they do World War II reenactments. That's awesome. But they've got uh, a half track. Um, They have a a tank. They've got a Willys Jeep, um, a number of things. What's a half track? It's the it's the big kind of medium duty truck with the tank treads on the back. So truck in the front. It's like a mullet. Yeah, it's a you know party in the back. Welcome to Transpose, a podcast. In every episode, industry visionaries bring their unique talents and insights into the transformation zone and transpose the ethos of an iconic brand, product, or experience into another market. Thought leaders, innovators, and creatives travel far into the future, unleashing disruption, and a little humor along the way. Welcome to Transpose. I'm Justin Dobb. With me as always is fellow technologist, innovator, and futurist Anju Ahuja. On this episode, we talk about innovation in the cannabis industry and tell a few dad jokes with Nick Sayers, CEO of Highway Horticulture. Stay tuned. Welcome, Nick, to the Transpose podcast. Thank you. We like to do our intros a little differently. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to any of the past podcasts. Um, I'm sure you've gone through all of them with great care, but. (laughs) (laughs) I I have. I I really, I did enjoy the the sailing, the gentleman. Oh, Randall. Randall. That was interesting. He's amazing. Oh, I'm going to let him know you said that. I think he'll, he'll appreciate that. If you listen to that, you know that what we like to do, the first intro we do is not really a demographics or professional uh, career highlights. We like to really talk about the words that come to mind, like when we think of our guests. And of course, I've known you for a while. Um, and, and these are some of the words that come to mind when I think about you. Entrepreneur, solid soul, unflappably analytical, quietly driven, and a father, more importantly, fellow father of a Josephine. I like it. I, I, I will. I'll take all of those. <laughs> uh, this is available for my life, my wife to listen to, right? Absolutely. Well, it will be when we're when I'm done editing, which which could be a while. But uh. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Nick, you and I have just met, and if we were doing this in real life in some really interesting place, let's say we were going to walk. Normally, we go meet people on the 15th floor, take the elevator up get to know each other on the way up. I feel like in your space, I need to walk 15 acres with you and just have you tell me about who you are and how you ended up in the cannabis industry. And I'm going to ask you all kinds of provocative questions about the industry, but tell us a little bit about you. Tell me right. about you. Yeah. If we walk 15 acres, we should do so very carefully. <laughs> there, there could be mines or other things in the field. Okay. Noted. 
where do I start? So I, I, I guess um, the end game is I got into cannabis. How I got there was a winding route uh, for sure. I grew up in a very entrepreneurial family, as, as Justin kind of alluded to in his, his words for me. When I was a kid, I was always just fascinated by business. My dad was a third generation entrepreneur who was running a printing company. That printing company was actually what was supporting our bison ranch uh, an hour and a half south of St. Louis. So I was really interested in business. When I was like five or six, I was going on on sales trips uh, with my dad, going to paper mills, going to see other other printing plants. And just was fascinated by the business and and started, you know, a a desire to one day run my own business, which I thought was going to be the printing company. That eventually was was sold uh, to a private equity firm, which kind of played into my mid-career. But we still had the bison ranch and I had this desire to continue the bison ranch and, and somehow maintain that, continue that later on in life. To do so, I knew I'd have to be financially independent uh, with the printing company gone. And, and uh, as a young kid, I, I was reading the P&Ls of the Bison Ranch and it wasn't pretty. Uh, so I, I, I knew to maintain that, I had to go out and, and do something on my own. So I stuck to a, a business career and my first, um, everything that I did was intentional to at uh, one day run my own business. So in college, I, I focused on business. I got into investment banking out of school, which I, I saw as highly competitive, but a, a great kind of training ground for just basic general business skills. I did not want to be a managing director at an investment banking firm. No, no offense to anybody. And I was intrigued by all, as, as I was doing this, I was intrigued by the the leaders leaders in the companies that were buying these businesses that I was selling, which was in the private equity industry. After a couple of years, uh, I jumped into the, the buy side is what they call it when you're uh, leveraged buyout groups and the family offices and private equity groups that are actually buying these companies. So I did that for a couple of years. Uh, and it, in my like mid-20s, I really wanted to go uh, run my own business, but I just... I did not. I looked around. I'm like, hey, I don't have the the capital. I don't have the experience. I don't have the skills. I don't have a company. I don't have partners. I I've, I was coming up short in every category. So I said, I, I'm going to go. I'll take the easy route. I'm going to go to business school. My thesis was to get back into the buy side and do it at a high level and achieve all those things that I thought were kind of shortcomings of mine to go run my own operation. So I, I went to uh, University of Chicago uh, Business School and had a couple really, really important things happen to me there. First and foremost, I met my wife, which I, I was not planning uh, to do going to, to UFC. So that, that was more significant than, than an MBA. she a fellow Maroon too? She is, yeah. So. Oh, nice. All right. We've, we three have that in common. There we go. Yeah. She, she was a year behind me. Um, so I, I guess I was the I was the guy that had the job that didn't have to spend a whole lot of time in the classrooms, and I could I could spend time kind of chasing her uh, <laughs> while she, she was she was very studious, uh, worked you know forty to sixty hours a week in that library studying. She was doing a, a career change, so we dated four and a half months uh, before we got engaged, and. We married a year after that. That is fast. That is fast and focused. Very focused. It was fast and focused. Yeah. It w- well, it was, you know, it's so self-selecting. Like when we you get there, you're like, she checked all the boxes. I'm like, <laughs> like what are we waiting for? Like, you know, we're, I, I know you're kind of career oriented, aggressive. You, you got 
you know, you got a, a good education. Like let's, let's, uh, let's get this thing going. So I got my wife and then, um, I reconnected with some colleagues that I worked with, uh, back in my first job out of college, uh, to join, uh, the family office, um, that Justin's a part of, uh, Justin and his family. Um, so I went not to work- the family with the tanks, let's be not clear. The family <laughs> with the tanks. Yeah. So I, I, I interned with the group um, and we were doing um, small to mid-sized uh, buyouts of services companies and financial services companies, including banks, uh, very entrepreneurial companies that were founder owned. Uh, and we were looking to take them to the next level with um, capital, you know, to help recruit management teams um, and grow through uh, acquisition and um you know, really uh, scale these companies with, with strong foundations. So that was what I saw as a great avenue uh, to get to my end game uh, of, you know, someday trying to run a company. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought great training ground. Um, and I, I had a, an awesome experience there. I, I was there for about a decade, um, but kind of similar to the investment banking side of things. I, I never wanted to be a partner at a private equity firm. Right. Uh, I, was, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur uh, who was running my own business. As I was going through my role there, I, I was always envious of the, you know, the CEOs and the the guys that were making it happen at the company. Uh, right. we, were, we were doing a lot of cool things to support them. But at, at the end of the day, like they, they were the ones that were, you know, calling the shots and growing the company and doing kind of what I'd set out to do. Yeah, I, I can I can see that. It's very energizing to capitalize a great business, but oh my God, is it so much more interesting to build it? Yeah. So I because I, I, I came, I, I'd always come into these things mid stride. Like they'd already gotten through a lot of the growth pains, you know, the initial pains of, of getting a company off the ground. And uh, we were coming in uh, to really supercharge it. It wasn't easy uh, by any means what we were doing because it was, it was taking, you know, small to mid-sized organizations and putting in back office foundational things to, to really allow them to, to the, the springboard to take off and then infusing them with capital and doing kind of transformational deals to, to really help grow them. Mm-hmm. Not, not easy, but, but just it's a little bit different than, than what I uh, had wanted to do all along. And very different from where you ended up. Very, very different from <laughs> where I, I ended up. Yeah, like, how did that happen? Yeah, starting a business is one thing. You're really in the nascent era of starting an industry. So talk to us about how that decision was made. So I failed. As I was going through my career, I had uh, kind of coached myself to go after and pursue acquisition of a services company, which made just a ton of sense for me because it's what I've been doing for, for 10 years. So I found a, a great target company um, to go after. It was a lighting maintenance services company. So nice recurring revenue, very similar mm-hmm. to the model that, that we looked at. Uh, and I was I thought I was close enough on the deal to pursue it. And so I, I, I started winding down uh, my role uh, to go jump after this thing. And it took a lot longer than I expected. And we got real close to the finish line and the deal fell through. There were some, some things in diligence that popped up that I, I, I couldn't get past uh, yeah. with the, the business owner. So I'm sitting here. I, got, I don't have a job anymore uh, and I don't have a company, which I thought I was going to go uh, run and, and, and control. And the same, the same week that the, the deal falls through, uh, I get a phone call from an old friend of mine. Um, who's now, he's the CFO of Green Thumb Industries. 
mm-hmm. um, which is a, it's a large publicly traded cannabis company mm-hmm. uh, ba- based in Chicago. He and I uh, had known each other forever. We went to uh, high school together and he hired me into my, my first private equity job like 18 years ago. And Anthony said, hey, uh, we're about to go public. We're going to have a lot of capital and we need to put together you know, a team to go really help us grow our footprint. Uh, at the time, they were in about seven states, but looking to expand rapidly into more kind of limited license states. Um, I, I was, this caught me out of left field. And I, and I first said, you know what, I, I'm gonna, Anthony, I'll help you. I'm probably not your guy because um, I'm just very independent. And I want to do my own thing. and I, I don't want to be part of a corporation. So I talked to my wife, uh, who's with her background. She's a great confidant for me. Um, and, and somebody that has kind of helped guide my uh, career and my dis- my major decisions I've made. And she said, you know, <laughs> you're kind of foolish not to pursue this or at least go talk to him. And so I, I, I remember this was early 20, or I guess it was April, May 2018. I go down to Green Thumb and I didn't know what to expect. Uh, and I, I jump into this headquarters. There's just, there's a a buzz of activity. I mean, it looks like Google or Apple. Mm-hmm. There's a hundred people flying around. Everyone's like 22 to 35. Like I, I was, I felt like I was the oldest guy like in the building. I, I wasn't that old. Um, so I sat down and I was like, okay, uh, this is really interesting. I'm like I, I could give this a go. Uh, and I, I quickly changed my tune. I said, you know, Anthony, I, I'm, I'm your guy. Like let's, let's uh, figure this thing out. Um, let's, you know, you, you know me, I'm independent. I'm, I'm probably going to go pursue my own thing. So I will make it my job uh, to help you guys uh, and make myself irrelevant as quickly as I can. Build a team, get them ready, uh, get all the standard operating procedures, all the templates ready and help you guys grow. Um, and we'll, we'll do it for a couple of years and, and see where we are. So I, I jumped into Green Thumb, uh, which I, I think today they're number number two or three, just in, in terms of size, but just a, a really great uh, company, great team. It was a really interesting transition for me because I'd been back at, at the you know the family office, private equity. You're kind of up in the, the quote unquote uh, ivory tower mm-hmm. uh, where you're calling, you're calling the big shots, but you're relying on the management teams in the company to execute on that. I hadn't been in that role before on the management team. So I, I got to, to parachute in and be part of that team with Green Thumb, which was just, it was amazing to help serve two purposes for me. One was to, to be part of that corporate team. Mm-hmm. And two was just, just to have uh, an awesome look at the industry um, from, from one of the, the high growth, uh, larger companies. So, so before we dive into your vantage point, you know, and what you see in the industry, you mentioned that you were brought in to expand the footprint of Green Thumb. Can you... Yep unpack exactly what that means in the context of where Green Thumb was growing, how they were trying to scale, what you had to do, what was happening with the law at the time, state-by-state regulations. Yeah. So we had, I think when I came over about seven states and we were doing everything we could to expand into uh, attractive states uh, that were limited license or just coming online. So we had what they call the ground game and the, and the air attack. Ground game was our applications team that, that was um, finding the new states that had enacted laws uh, to legalize cannabis 
and uh, do the the hard work that's you know thousands of pages and multiple binders mm-hmm. of information to to win those 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 licenses. I was brought in primarily to go acquire those licenses. So okay. To either to find the licenses uh, that were available or acquire operators that had already achieved those licenses. Okay, so that's how your buy side background anybody now I get it. At the time there actually there weren't a lot of guys like me with, with my background uh, that were in in these big companies. Green Thumb was kind of ahead of the game uh, in terms of being forward thinking how they were building those teams and, and looking at, at expansion. Innovators often struggle with market timing and I imagine your colleagues at Green Thumb there was a moment where they were like, yeah, the timing's right now for this industry and some people that were still waiting on the sidelines. Do you know, like, what were the signals people were picking up that made them feel like, you know, this hotly anticipated industry that's been hotly anticipated for decades was finally ready to become a large-scale legal industry with a bunch of publicly traded entities in it? Yeah, so I, I think it was it was two things. There were enough states that were coming online uh, to have companies with significant scale, mm-hmm. and two, the the capital markets, uh, particularly up up in Canada. Uh, were heating up and um, open to and actually pursuing uh, to have some of these U.S. operators uh, list on, on the, uh, the Canadian Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it became part of the, the capital plan uh, for these companies to, to list up, up in Canada. That makes sense. And now we're at the point where, you know, there's ETFs of a bunch of different, all kinds of ETFs that are trading in this space, which is... <laughs> I think there's an ETF for everything. Well, there's point. a SPAC for everything, but yes, probably an <laughs> ETF too. Yeah. No, the it's it's dizzying the capital inflows and outflows um, of, of what's what's gone on the past kind of three or four years uh, since some of these big operators have listed. So, when you're looking at expanding into states that the that are just coming online, how are you? How do you approach sizing the market in those states? Are there kind of universal rules that you guys use, or are you doing um, you know when you pro forma out what you think you can do? Uh, what what's going through your head? Generally, most of these states come online uh, medical first. So it's, it's medical license, meaning you have to petition the state to get a license um, to, to buy the cannabis from a, a, a legal dispensary uh, for a medical condition that you have. And you know, it's, it can range. It, it runs the entire gamut. I mean, it's uh, PTSD, it's cancer, uh, it's chronic pain, um, it's... There's all, all sorts of conditions that, that can be treated uh, with with cannabis. So the early early medical markets are always a lot smaller uh, than than when you have the adult use um, kind of fully twenty one uh, and legal markets. So you first look at okay, what's what's the uh, potential medical population in the state, and you, you size it for that, knowing it's probably going to stick around that size uh, for a while. Mm-hmm with some penetration. And then, then you also try and extrapolate, okay, well, this state may have 200,000 patients, but it's, it's got a population of 6 million. What's the penetration look like uh, if and when this goes um, adult use? Typically, it's as easy as just high level, here, here's the, the population. And, and you can look at kind of consumption trends um, in those states as well. I mean, some, some states are heavier heavier on the consumption than, than others. How do you get to consumption trends on something that's um, uh, heretofore not been legal? There's been, in a lot of states, there's been a, a gray a gray market um, where they have uh, caregivers 
um, where it hasn't been, you know, fully kind of legally licensed, but you, there are some gray is probably as good as I can get. I mean, it's, it's not, <laughs> it's not the, not necessarily the black market. Um, yeah. right, it's, right. it's not, you know, the state hasn't enacted a full, a full program. Um, and, and you can get, uh, some of these, you know, consumption patterns, uh, through research and, and data. There's a, a whole suite of analytics and, and data providers, uh, in cannabis that help, uh, put that information together. You mentioned earlier that if and when, right, this the state advances from legalizing beyond medical use for just general consumption, right, or recreational use. Yep. And it, the, the analogy that's sticking in my head is autonomous vehicles, right? There's some markets where, yeah, sure, they're being tested, but will they ever really get commercially available? How long will that take? Uh, when will it be widespread in terms of usage and adoption? What did you guys... What did you think about in terms of threats and risks to the business if, if in fact, a state was really going to be slow in moving past medical? Or if did you ever have to back out of a market because you're starting to pick up signals that were just not favorable? That's a really interesting question. It, we've never backed out of a market. Uh, it, it just it, it'll slow uh, our investment into that market. The Northeast has been very slow to, to adopt uh, adult use. Massachusetts has been kind of the the, the quicker adopter of, of most of those states. At Green Thumb, we were tracked to the Northeast with the the, the population size, the density, uh, and the the ability to serve you know millions of of, of customers uh, through kind of few distribution outlets. Mm-hmm. But the uh, the programs were very slow to to come online and. We found, you know, some some of the the Western markets uh, and Midwest markets were uh, quicker to adopt and had faster timelines, and that that's that's where you saw our investment capital going uh, to to go in to build these these behemoth uh, cultivation facilities uh, and invest in the retail footprints uh, to serve the the recreational adult use markets. So, in the markets where you were just nursing it, because. You know, you weren't necessarily deploying capital at a heavy pace. You, things were going slower than you expected in terms of program development. Did you stick with it or stay in because the licenses were so valuable? We did. I mean, what was the logic around nursing? You know, once once there's a medical program, it, there is at some point going to be uh, recreational adult use. You just don't know how fast the the legislation or, or the law is going to change. Got it. Uh, and it, it can change quickly. Uh, so you need to be ready to, to move uh, in case that happens. Got it. Okay. It's an election, right? So uh, states near us, Illinois and Michigan uh, in particular, they had Republican governors uh, and medical programs. And as soon as the, the gubernatorial elections shifted, the adult use programs came very quickly. So the, the, the medical program quickly turned into uh, full-blown recreational and adult use. Just to prepare for that, do you, do you ever stoke that by being involved in lobbying or campaign finance or getting involved with different races? Yeah, th- there there is. There's a lot of, of uh, grassroots efforts, uh, okay. lobbying, just a lot of education. That's the best pun I've heard in a long time, by the way. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I actually missed that. So thank you for bringing, thank you yeah. for highlighting that. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a child. I'm an immature child. So every time I hear anything like that, I snicker inside and have to point. No, it out. you're you're a connoisseur of dad jokes. Which, which, <laughs> yes, agreed. 
it's kind of it's where I find myself. That, that's one of you know, when, I, when I look myself in the mirror. That'd be the other term I might use uh, besides entrepreneur and analytical. Be dad jokes. I've saved it for myself. That's the only reason you didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it, because if if you I mean you think about it, like even a couple of years ago, it, it, there's a, a massive stigma around the industry. And so there's politicians that are afraid to, you know, to jump over to the dark side and approve a program uh, because they, there's, you know, citizens with the pitchforks that are, are upset that, that this could happen in their backyard. And so there's, there's just a lot of, there is a lot of education that, that goes on of like, okay. Actually, that's, that was something I wanted to touch on later, but you brought it up and I'm really curious. You're closer to probably some of the um, some of the objections or the objectors that are out there. What is driving the fear, or is it beyond fear? Uh, I think it's it's like 80 years of, of misinformation. I mean, I grew up in the Nancy Ronald Reagan kind of war on drugs. Like this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. And as a lot of people did, and there was a, you know, a conservative kind of social stigma against, uh, and not just conservative, I think in general, it was viewed uh, as, as dangerous and potent as, as other, you know, real drugs that are dangerous and potent, you know, cocaine and, and heroin and, and others without really understanding kind of the, the real benefit of it and how dangerous it's not. Mm-hmm. My eyes opened wide when I came into the industry in 2018. My perceptions changed really quickly. Um, I approached it, you know, first as a as a business person and an entrepreneur and a capitalist, saying, "Okay, this this seems like a, a great market opportunity." And you you quickly see like the the, the actual causes and the people that are. Uh, consuming it on the medicinal side and how it's, it's benefiting them. No, it's life changing for a lot of people. Yeah, it, it is life changing, and and you see, you know, consumption of opioids and consumption of other drugs uh, decrease uh, with with increased legalization of, of cannabis. Which is the exact opposite of the story that's been told for years about how cannabis is a gateway drug. Correct. Yeah. That's that's right, and alcohol. <laughs> I could I could spend a lot of time talking about alcohol. That was that, that, that was the family sauce, you know. Seeing my my ninety one year old dad, um, and seeing the, the benefits that, that cannabis can have for him and in, in his pain in his later years, um, and how much you know he abhorred Like he, he never tried it in his life until I got involved uh, in the industry. I said, Dad, you know, this could really help you. And um, my dad's like to the right of Attila Don. <laughs> he was okay with it because he he saw what I saw, and, and you know he, he first saw it from from the business side too, uh, in support of what I was doing. And then when I relayed stories to him about uh, veterans groups and you know the, the the people that were really benefiting from it from the medicinal side, like he he came around and he said, you know. I'm willing to try something. So it's gone from from being very stigmatized over a long period of time by groups that were threatened by it. You know, pharmaceutical, uh, tobacco, alcohol. I mean, it's it's a substitute for all those. Yep. Uh, there were just a lot of of resources that that went against it. Well, and they've been throwing a lot of resources at campaigning against this, right? I mean, it's it's amazing how imbalanced it is. There's a lot of work that needs to be done just in disabusing people of stories that they've been told for years that they've kind of like taken to be real research 
And in fact, there's great research out there, great scientific research that shows some of the benefits of this. Yep. No, and from from the um, on cannabis, there there has there's been research on it, but it, it's been so few and far between because it has been federally illegal. Like the mm-hmm. the, the dollars behind it are, are so minimal. Like I think that's going to change. I mean, we, we all know uh, you know some of the, the key components of of cannabis that are utilized, the, the cannabinoids, uh, THC, which is the, the psychoactive. Mm-hmm. Uh, CBD, which is kind of the the relaxer, and um, you know it helps with with inflammation. Uh, but there there are so many other uh, smaller um, or other cannabinoids in the plant that are in trace amounts. Um, so it's hard at this point to, to be commercially uh, viable, but but have like so many uses and can help help all sorts of, of different afflictions and pain and and things that the pharmaceutical industry is, is is doing through other drugs. So let's move from the industry as a whole and and you know uh, green thumb into what you're doing now. Tell us about how you made that transition to finally be the entrepreneur in this industry. Sure. So I'll, I'll wrap up my green thumb uh, career quickly because because that that was important. Uh, so. 18 months, my first 18 months is insane. We, we did um, probably close to $800 million of, of transactions, just buying licenses, buying uh, retail operations, buying cult- cultivation operations, buying brands, uh, buying multi-state operators. Uh, I also got to invest for the investment portfolio that we had there uh, into high growth startup companies um, that we were watching um, and would want to take part of if they became viable or successful. Were they in a particular category? Were they dispensaries or were they more in the growers? It was uh, technology. So okay, got it. Uh, delivery technologies, um, nascent brands, biotech companies uh, mm-hmm. that were you know, finding different ways to utilize the cannabinoids. Basically, kind of outside of the mainstream uh, retail and, and cultivation. So I saw just a, a tremendous amount of, of deal activity uh, and I, I studied various markets. And one market that I studied uh, was Michigan, which was you know, near to where we were. And it was had a huge uh, patient population and adult use uh, was coming. And the other thing that fascinated me, fascinated me by Michigan was it was nearly impossible for a company like Green Thumb to get qualified to operate there. Uh, and that's because the, the regulatory agency just had the screening process uh, that you had to supply hundreds of pages of financial information, tax information, everything like, uh, you know, about you in the last 20 years. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but um, it, it was feasible for an individual to, to clear, but almost impossible for a publicly traded company with a board that was constantly changing, a management team that was constantly changing to get that information in timely to where they could be um, accepted by the state. So there was a dearth of large, uh, well-capitalized players at the top of the industry, and there was uh, just a ton of, of what I call kind of mom and pops or single location companies um, at the bottom. And there, mm-hmm. there were there's some mid-sized players in there, but I thought it just looked really, really interesting as a point of entry for, for someone like me to, to pursue. Another reason why I liked Michigan or why I, I chose it was it, it is competitive. So to, to enter into a state like Illinois that was highly, highly limited license uh, where they only have I think, 24 licenses for, for cultivators, like 
you have to have a, a, a just a, a massive amount of capital uh, to pursue and, and to buy one of those licenses. Talking like you know twenty thirty million uh, just to get a, a license. Michigan, once you get in there, it's uncapped. The licenses are uncapped um, at the state level, but you, you got to find the right cities to go win competitive application processes. So it, it was um, less restrictive uh, barriers to entry uh, from the competitive landscape. So there were unlimited licenses statewide, but are there um, kind of granted monopolies on the municipal level or, or limited, you know, are they saying that they'll bring in one or two providers or how does that work? Yeah. So, so the, the municipalities will, will cap the number of licenses they'll issue. Uh, so some are very favorable where it's, you know, one or two licenses of, of the, the various kinds. Some areas are just wide open uh, where, you know, you could see you you can't throw a rock without hitting a, a dispensary in, in some of these towns in Michigan. Wow, I had no idea the landscape was that different. I also didn't realize the cost to buy in in states like Illinois was that high, which explains why the corporate interests line up the way they do. Yeah, no, it, it, Illinois is is certainly um, much more corporate. Uh, all all the big players are are kind of running the market in Illinois. Um, Michigan is more wide open. So it feels like that would choke out entrepreneurship at some level, and choke out innovation to some extent, unless it becomes this massive IP game where you want intellectual property around strains and then you want to license it out, and that's the end game. I, th- I think that's a good observation. I, I think it does, you know, innovation is going to happen uh, because it's, you know, we're, we're all looking at it um, at, at some point as a national game, and you, and you can't rest on your laurels in a state just because they're not issuing more licenses. But in terms of the the entrepreneurship, yeah, if, if you can't, you know, if you can't scrape together seven or eight figures, um, it's it's hard it's hard to get into the game. And it's hard for a lot of people to scrape together seven or eight figures. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> thank thank you thank you Justin. I uh, I reached into my couch looking for it yesterday. <laughs> in the, What'd you find? I got, I got a couple of quarters. That's it. Okay. So talk a little bit about when you were building highway horticulture uh, as a brand. How did you want to communicate your position in the market? Like, what did you stake out as your territory? So the most important thing uh, for me and for highway horticulture in a state like Michigan, um, Michiganders, as I mentioned, uh, love love the cannabis. Um, one of the, the highest consumption rates in the country. It's, it's kind of, it's akin to like the Colorado of, of the Midwest. Mm-hmm. So just a, a deep appreciation for the flower product, um, the smokable flower. Uh, Michigan's had a, a caregiver market um, for over 10 years. And so they've, they've been served by craft operators that have been making high quality flower because they're, you know, they're doing it in their basement, they're doing it in the garage, but every plant is their baby. And so they, they make these beautiful flowers, beautiful buds uh, that the consumers really admire. Fast forward to you know big cannabis, it's often been more quantity over quality uh, because it's you know right at the onset of, the, of these things when a market goes adult use, all that matters is supply. It, it doesn't matter about quality. You know, I, I remember uh, being in in the Illinois market January 2020. That first week, uh, we were short-staffed on, on, on retail employees, and so I, we were working in the stores. 
and people were just coming in and, and it was so limited the supply that, you know, they were like, Hey, can I, how many of these things can I get? I'm like, I ah, can get one. They're like, <laughs> they're like, what, well, how, how's the quality? I'm like, it doesn't matter. You, you can get one. They're, they're like, great. How much is it? Um, you know, it's, it's 70 bucks and out the door with taxes, it'll be about you know, 85, 90 bucks. And they're like, wow, that's expensive, but uh, I'll, I'll take it. So er, early on, quality really didn't matter. But over, over time, um, as, as production scales up, the consumers uh, become a little bit more selective and they, mm-hmm. they really want to, they want to get back to, to what they, what brought them in the industry in the first place, uh, especially on the, on the flower side. My focus initially is, is on, on the product, uh, which is making very high quality indoor flower. Um, there's, there's ways to do it. Um, but it, it's, it's expensive to make it. And so you have to have the investment capital to design facilities with the right infrastructure, the right equipment uh, to be able to produce it. And you have to have the right team, uh, which is the right uh, grow team that has access to the right genetics uh, that are going to be demanded by the consumers. And so I'm, I'm trying to get back to, you know, where the Michigan market was five, 10 years ago uh, from a, a craft quality standpoint uh, to where we're really differentiating uh, that flower product and, and flour, by the way, it's about 55% of what is consumed in the Michigan market. And that's that's close to the, the national average. And so my, my plan is, hey, let's, let's lead and build our brand uh, with quality on the flour side. And that'll give us permission uh, to get into ancillary products once we're known and we have that reputation established. So on the product front, do you and your competitors, do you patent your strains or do you genetically modify them and then think about patenting the strains? Is there a land race issue um, in the industry around strains? It's very difficult to, to actually uh, patent it and to get IP protections around uh, cannabis strains. Okay. And you don't see that changing? Not anytime soon. Not, you know, it, I, probably because, you know, everything that's on the shelves has, has been being grown kind of the, the last 20, 30 years. Right. Um, but there are groups out there that are innovating um, through what we call pheno hunts, uh, where, where they do, you know, they take some of the, the best uh, seed stock from the high quality growers uh, out west and they they line up a, a hunt where they, they start growing plants and they start cross pollinating the plants and uh, making you know new strains uh, mm-hmm. by genetically modifying them and really investing the, the time and resources into finding something you know that's that's the new new that's but it's based on uh, what's what's tried and true uh, with with the past genetics. So that's that's actually what we're pursuing at Highway Horticulture. We're about to do a massive pheno hunt. Uh, we've been compiling uh, just a crazy inventory of genetics and strains, and we're about to turn on our, our first grow facility uh, to be a, a big test run um, to, to build that and, and to find to, you know to find these strains. Like uh, as as my grower says, you know we're. We're throwing darts at a dartboard, and we're aiming for the bullseye. You know, a hundred out of a hundred times uh, with with this pheno run. 
That's amazing. I didn't actually realize you were that close to that part of the industry. Um, so this is, now I have to ask, that's product innovation, right? The way I think about it. And, and you do it in different ways in many different industries. Do you think the United States uh, maybe lost its place in the overall global cannabis industry because it waited so long to loosen well, or to, to regulate it differently, right? To legalize it and to regulate it differently. We still have issues with banking, which we can talk about in a minute. But do you, do you think that other countries, other markets are just way more advanced in terms of product innovation and cannabis because we were late? So my quick answer is we're innovating here in the U.S. It's just not at scale like other countries are able to do. You know, yeah. like Canada where you got full use. Uh, you know, it's fully federally legal up there. Uh, Israel is actually a hotbed for for the the, the cannabis biotech and technology. Yep. Um, so I, I I think we have seeded you know an advantage there. It's another pun, by the way. It's another pun. <laughs> Oh, that was good. No, I, <laughs> I was waiting for Justin a, to say something. It's a, his know, eyes lighting up. Right, it's a homophone pun. pun <laughs> but let's let's keep that one in there. Uh, I'm I'm particularly proud of that one. Th- thank you, Justin. <laughs> I guess because it's illegal doesn't mean we've 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 stopped or or there 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 hasn't been activity around um, continuing to find genetics and continuing to to build the best products. It's just it's done in a patchwork system uh, where it's, it's state by state and it's, it's hard to, to get a real kind of national um, plan put together. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's put us back. Um, but I, I think we can quickly kind of catch up once there is full federal legalization. Um, we've, we've, we've skirted around the banking issue a couple of times. I think we should dive right in um, because of this mismatch, right, between state law and federal law around cannabis, the industries had to get very innovative on how they handle their cash and and their treasury management and things like that. Could you tell us a little bit about the state of that at this point and and, and if there's anything you've had to do that, that you know, how creative you've had to be? Uh, leaps and bounds uh, better than where it was even, you know, two or three years ago. Uh, so because it's federally illegal, as we all know, uh, the only banks that can operate in this area are uh, state chartered banks, um, which, you know, you got you got to find very entrepreneurial banks that are willing to take the risk uh, mm-hmm. to, to build a compliance team uh, that's going to evaluate and you know, basically attest that every dollar um, is coming from. Uh, state legal sales and and they they have just you know massive uh, regulatory regimes to to monitor the, the seed to sale systems um, meaning like the, the bank and the state need to attest that uh, I know everything that happened once that seed was planted once that plant grew and what happened to that plant after it grew when it was uh, harvested, and whether it went to dry and cure and be sold as flour, whether it was processed um, and made into medically infused products, uh, gummies or chocolate, uh, and you know who who it sold to, what batch it was, what the, what the potency was. Um, so there, there's just there's a lot of, of federally legal, uh, but highly highly regulated at the state, and the banks that are participating in it have to have. Uh, large uh, administrative teams 
uh, just to make sure that, that they're in compliance uh, with with their state regulators, uh, that, that they, you know, they're doing the, the proper audits and, and can show uh, backup that their banking clients and cannabis are, are also in compliance. So example of kind of where we came from, I mean, the, the, the cash runs are, were real. I mean, people running around with Brinks trucks or, you know, armored GMCs. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember uh, when I when I first started back in, in 2018, uh, there wasn't a banking solution in Nevada. So there was a bank in Colorado uh, that would fly out to people you know, from, from Denver to Reno and they'd get in the car, uh, go pick up all the cash and dispensaries and drive it back to Colorado. And this was just a couple of years ago, which just kind of blew my mind. Um, today, there, there's more options. Um, there's more banks, I think, that are, are seeing this thing uh, turning. And it's you know it's going to become a reality and a profit center uh, versus something that, that's taboo and illegal. And today, I, I think it's the, the biggest pain points as an operator, as a cannabis operator, are the, the cost. Uh, it's very expensive. Uh, partly because there aren't that many banks that are in there, uh, so th- they can charge higher prices. But but yeah. they are also supporting a big infrastructure uh, themselves to be able to offer the product. So they're recouping that through these high fees. Um, and you know, it's, you don't have uh, a great, especially if you're a national player. You're, you got a patchwork system. So if you're in 13 states, you got 13 banks potentially. Yeah. This is where uh, my my head runs to blockchain, right? So you're yeah. talking about having to have this provenance on everything, you know, everything tied to an NFT or something like that. But then again, the product per se changes form so much. I don't know if that that works. Um, no, I I think blockchain is actually a, a a great you know this would be a great use for that because like we got to track that that transformation of the product anyway. So we're reporting every step of the way, every time something changes um, from that plant that grew from a seed into a different product that moved from one location to another, it's being recorded and being tracked uh, by the state. Where did you guys get the talent to do that kind of work in this space? Did they come from the food industry? Like, you know, people that were doing this around sustainable foods or other things? I mean, that's, that's hard to do diligence because there is a parallel gray market. Because there are sources and uses of funds that are not legal at all running in parallel to this. This gets back a little bit to, to my, my thesis. Justin, th- thanks for calling me analytical. People usually don't pat <laughs> you on the back. They don't pat you in the back saying, man, that's great. You're, you're entering a, a highly competitive market. Uh, usually you do better if it's less competitive. Right. Um, so to do that, I needed two things. I needed to be, to be well capitalized. And I needed to have a killer team uh, with me, and kind of the, the first one begets the second because mm-hmm. it's, it's you can be a nice guy, but people want to get paid and, and understand that there's going to be like an infrastructure around them at the end of the day. Um, and so, as I was kind of building out my team, um, I wanted to get a, a really good blend of of cannabis knowledge, um, but also kind of role specific knowledge that, that may not be as high on the, on the, uh, sorry, Justin, uh, you can, you can call me out for another pun. Uh, <laughs> I missed it. I missed that one too. Oh, <laughs> cannabis, Nick, you're good for three now. Yeah. I'm I, know, I, I caught myself mid stride, but um, <laughs> I, I didn't want solely just 
cannabis people that have been in the industry for you know 20, 30 years from the black to the gray to, to the legal market. Uh, but, but you want you want some of that uh, for sure because it, that I mean just that that true connection to the plant, uh, the, the connection to the market um, and to the consumer that, that's been consuming longer than than just when it, when it went legal is really important. Uh, so my team is a mix of uh, folks with multi-state operator experience that were at at some of the the, the big players. Uh, that wanted to go find something more entrepreneurial, uh, less corporate. And it's also, I'm attracting people uh, that, that are coming from uh, CPG, from Alcbev, uh, from food, um, uh, into a super high growth uh, industry uh, like cannabis. So I, it's, and, and there's some, some, some folks, you know, on the back office side of things, I, I just look to, um, their experience in other highly regulated industries versus the, the requirement that they've, they've been in cannabis before. You've brought up something I have on my question list already. So on this podcast, we like to explore how the experience or ethos of one brand or industry can be really transposed in to create something new in, a, in another industry. Yep. Um, so what brands and industries really were inspiration to you or even the people that you, you're bringing on, right? It sounds like they are finding experience in other industries fungible to, to your industry. You know, I look to the, a bit to the beverage industry. When you're consuming something, you want to know how it's going to taste. You want to know the effect and you want that to be repeatable. Cannabis in the early goings was not. So it, everything was kind of a, a mixed bag. Oh, there you go. Number four. <laughs> Man, you beat me to it now. See, I've got your radar up. I know you got no. You, you do. No, I'm, I'm, I'm self conscious on the dad jokes and, and the, <laughs> the, the cannabis puns. You get a an infused product, a, a, a gummy, an edible. It's going to have a high variance of effect because the the process that went through the manufacturing was. Uh, not uniform. It, it, it advertises that it's 10 milligrams, but maybe it's eight uh, because it wasn't, you know, batched well, uh, didn't have have the right consistency. And so you're consuming things and, and it's, it's going to be hit or miss uh, with, with how there, it- Wait, there was another one. <laughs> oh, I, I missed that one. Hit or hmm. miss. Ooh. Ooh. Yep. He yep. got subtle. <laughs> we got a lot of them. Let's I'll take, keep going. I'll take it. Five. <laughs> can, can, can we get a bell? <laughs> We need a sound effect. All right, I'll work on it. Yeah. Um, so I, I think you know some of the best winemakers in the world, some of the best uh, beers you know that you like to consume, alcohol. If you have three drinks or you have one sip of this wine, like you kind of know what you're going to get, and it's, it's that that consistency I think is going to drive um, more consumers to come over into cannabis and keep the ones you know that are already uh, consuming in cannabis happy. Because they know exactly what the effect is that, that they'll they'll receive from from the consumption. So I think you did a great job just now of laying out how complex it is to put really great product out there and yep. re- consistently put really great product out there where the consumer's expectations are not just met, but they're probably elated with the product that they get and what it's going to do for them. How you know when I look at this industry, and I've been spending a lot of time working on a certain project right now that has me very focused on value chains, right? And thinking about, you know, something that's just a raw input at one end and like, you know, how you build it up to be something really transformational at the other end. 
And I look at this industry as an outsider and I kind of feel like there are pieces of this value chain that just seem missing. I mean, banking, that's one thing, right? You know, just what's happening at the federal level versus state level, that's another. Uh, Are there things that you see as an insider where you're like, you know, if we had these building, if we had these pieces in place, we could be so much better at scaling this industry, at delivering better product, at delighting users, at, you know, generating a lot more returns? And let's leave it to the U.S. market because that's where you're operating. Yeah. Um, if I think that the thing that could benefit consumers the most and increase uh, demand would be some kind of uniform testing. Every state has its own testing regimes. And within that, they have multiple licensed testing companies, these laboratories, and the results coming out of these companies, it's, it's just the variances are so incredibly high. Like it, it's, you, you can have um, same batch of a, of a harvest can go in and, you know, to one, one company will test at 22% THC and the next one it'll come out at 31% THC. So are and these CROs like contract research houses or are they, they're definitely specialists in cannabis? They are licensed in cannabis uh, to, to test the products. And okay. so, so the consumers will see on the shelf, um, a lot of times consumers buy on potency. So they'll see on the shelf, yeah. oh, wow, like th- that that scored over 31% THC. Like that's the one I want to have. That's that's the, the effect I want. I want to I get high. Um, but in reality, it, it may not be 31%. It could be 20. Yeah. And they don't know that. But the, the more that, that they hear, and there's a huge recall in Michigan that happened a couple of weeks ago where it was like 50 or 60,000 pounds of, of flour was taken off the shelves uh, because of a, of a testing issue, because of, of massive uh, variances and potential mold. When the consumers see that, they start to, to doubt the legal market. And they're like, you know, why am I paying higher prices to go into these these shiny, clean dispensaries when I, you know, I could just get it from my neighbor like like I was prior mm-hmm. to that. Like yeah. I, I was doing it because because I thought it was cleaner. I thought it was consistent and I thought it was packaged well. Um, but if if it's unclear that that's actually happening, like I, I'm I'm confused as a consumer. So do you think that the um, inconsistencies are from uh, lack of consistent? procedure or, do you, or is the equipment not standardized or what do you think is going on there? Uh, yes and yes. Uh, and there, there's an even, you know, there's a, a more nefarious uh, potential, which is, you know, some, some people are, are they're putting their finger on the scale uh, ah. to, to get things to pass that may otherwise, maybe otherwise shouldn't have passed or to, to test higher than, than they really, you know, in actuality are. Um, and that's the problem with a really fragmented system, uh, with multiple operators, multiple states, multiple bureaucracies over these things and not, not like, you know, centralized, um, not centralized equipment. You know, I think that the best thing, my, my, my partner mentioned this, he's like, we should have Germany do it. They don't give, <laughs> they don't care. Like, let's just, yeah, they, yeah. they don't know what's going on in Michigan. They don't know what's going on in Illinois. Like they don't have a, a, a dog in the fight. <laughs> Send it all there and their highly calibrated equipment and, and let it test. And, you know, it comes back and it's got more credibility than when we send it to this other lab that we know is run by, you know, uh, f- former gray or black market folks and, and uh, may have interests in some of the companies that they're testing for that's not known to, to the, the regimes. 
Right. So there's there's a lot I think that could be improved, um, and that that's just that's a you know another side effect of of not being uh, fully legal to where if you have 50 states, you might as well, it's just 50 countries. I mean, they're all very different. Yeah. So along those lines, similar to the alcohol industry, does the cannabis industry have tide house laws? Where, you know, the, and just for clarification, where the, I guess it's manufacturer of alcohol, distribution and retail are separated and it varies from state to state if memory serves. Oh, the, the three-tier system that alcohol works Yeah, exactly, works exactly, which was supposed to be for the consumer's interest, right, and to prevent any party from exerting leverage or pressure on another part of the chain. Uh, cannab- cannabis is all over the map. So some states, you're fully vertically integrated to where uh, you're producing it, you're distributing it, and you're selling it. Um, Michigan, where highway horticulture is, uh, the one piece that we can't be fully vertical is on the distribution. So if you if you have a transporter license, which is required to move the product, you can't have an interest in any other kind of license. What's the logic around that? Um, I, I was afraid you were going to ask that. because you I, don't I, shove black product into it? Because it's illogical. <laughs> Uh, I, I can't I can't always get my wrap my head in, around the what the regulators are, are thinking. They wanted to protect the transportation market for a, a friend of theirs who's got a logistics company. Yeah, I was thinking a special interest for the industry, but maybe I'm being cynical. No, it's it, well, it's funny that you ask that because um, our company is, is going to represent manufacture branded products for uh, other companies that are looking to expand into Michigan. And they ask, you know, they say, okay, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, I, I'm going to, I'm going to manufacture it. I'm going to package it. Uh, I'm going to wholesale it, but I can't distribute it. And they're like, well, they're like, why is that? I'm like, I don't know, but this question might be asked to me again, <laughs> some point down the road. <laughs> so I, I should have had the answer on you, but, but, uh, well, that's gonna, okay. If you, if you come up with an answer, I, I would love to know. I mean, just stepping aside, are there any markets that you think, with respect to this tiering of activities and in, in where they're not vertically integrated, right? Markets where it's not vertically integrated. Are there any w- areas where you think the regulation actually makes sense? Where, okay, I can see the cause and effect. I can see what people are trying to protect. That's in the consumer's interest. Or that's in the interest of keeping it legalized and properly regulated. A market like Michigan, uh, because it, it is uh, fairly open, uh, where there's there's plenty of of uh, diversity of producers and diversity of retailers like the, it's very hard to, to manipulate the market uh, which which could happen in more restrictive licensed states um, where, where it's controlled by by more of, a, of an oligopoly but I think you know competition is probably the, the best cure to, to fight that do you feel like consumers should be able to DIY aspects of this or do you feel like that's actually a competitive threat or that's good for the industry and that leads to entrepreneurship maybe some innovation on the product side maybe the creation of new strains I support DIY are you in the minority because not everyone I know in this industry supports it um, I I'm probably probably am in the, in the minority but our our group like highway horticulture we support caregivers because those are the pioneers that, that brought the industry kind of you know, from the dark to the light um, and they're they're the ones that have been cultivating uh, consumer experiences and, and getting them a, a, you know accustomed to high quality flower, uh, and it's not a real competitive threat 
in, yeah. in the, the long term because it not not everybody's going to put 12 plants in their basement and go through the, the, the pain of that, the process of it, uh, and the, you know, harvesting that and, and converting that into products. Uh, people that are going to do that, we're going to do it anyway. Um, there's a much bigger market out there uh, for us to attack. And, and it's, it's the, you know, it's the people that are kind of curious, if you will, um, <laughs> yep. that are, looking to, you know, decrease their, their booze consumption, you know, try a microdose, um, looking to, to, to find something that fights their headaches, uh, helps them alleviate a hangover on, on Saturday, um, relaxes them, gets them. You know, I, I had uh, dental surgery like two months ago and I got, I had all these prescriptions that I was afraid of. I'm like, I'm like, skip that. I, I'm going to go get, get some two to ones at the local dispensary. <laughs> which, which I did. And it, it helped, it helped the pain It helped me relax, helped me sleep. And I, I didn't have to worry about, you know, the, the effects of Norco or whatever they, they, uh, they prescribed for me. Yeah. So, Norco's hardcore. So I, I think like, it's good to have those enthusiasts, um, that are growing their own stuff and innovating. Um, they're, they're not going to be a huge part of the market or, or divert a lot of sales. Um, and the, the more we can actually like, uh, collaborate with them and, you know, have things that, uh, appeal to them that, that they can't grow themselves. Um, you know, they, they may come on our store every once in a while as well. Yep. We're, we're, we're trying to find ways to, uh, to support caregivers, to support folks that are doing that, um, and not be kind of the big corporate, you know, gorilla that says like, Hey, like, you know, if you're producing that, it's, it's cutting into my sales. Well, and I'm certainly not out here trying to encourage illegal activity, but I think if if an industry does not allow people to experiment in order to become entrepreneurial with the inputs of what they're going to basically build later, then you're going to lose that talent to other parts of the world. I mean, look yeah. at what's happening it, with crypto. People have like, they're leaving left and right. Well, th- think about the craft beer and then think about the yeah. you know, people that, that brew it in their, you know, in their basement or their garage. Like it, it's not really cutting into to Molson Coors um, top line. And, and some of those, those folks uh, grew it into really innovative companies that, that were later bought out by, by some of the big guys. Well, so then along those lines, are you, and you've done roll-ups, I'm guessing, from your PE background. And mm-hmm. when you talk about all these mom and pops at the lower level, do you think roll-ups are a good thing for this industry? Or, you know, maybe later on when it's more mature, or that that's also going to choke out innovation? Hold on. That's number six. Oh, I missed it. Roll-up. Oh, Ooh. gosh. <laughs> it, it's yeah, it's we- close. It's close. <laughs> I'm going to give myself a fail on that one. I'll try harder next time. No, here, I'll give you an assist. We're in the pre-roll-up phase. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but um, um, no, so um, I'm excited about roll-ups. I mean, I, I, I'm the guy who was used to deploying capital to acquire all these companies. Yeah. So doing a, a greenfield um, and building something from scratch and not buying something operating was, was really challenging. Uh, it it um, used a much different part of my brain than, than saying, oh, cool, I, I can look at the financials and slap a multiple on that. And here's the price, here's the structure. And I got an operating company. Great. Um, so I, I think... Um, 
there's a lot of, I think rollups will, you know, they will be good. They will benefit um, the, the mom and pops and the bigger, bigger players. Uh, and, and they're as long as, as they're not, you know, a place like Michigan, uh, it's going to be a virtuous cycle of companies. Uh, Justin, strangely, I see a lot of similarities between uh, Michigan, the Michigan cannabis market, and the Florida pest control market. <laughs> but you you have that on the brain. <laughs> You've got Florida pest control on the brain, though. So, well, I, Every- I, yeah, I spent eight, eight years uh, <laughs> going down and drinking iced teas at Applebee's, buying single route pest control technician companies for <laughs> like you know two hundred thousand uh, dollars. But there, there, the interesting thing there. Um, why I think it's like you know, Michigan's kind of like Florida on the, the the pest control market is, you know, I could go in, I could buy if, if I had all the capital, I, I could buy hundreds of these of these retailers, and then I'll have a big chain. But they'll they'll keep popping up, you know, as as more licenses are, are issued and and more competitions out there that's that's doing something different than my my hundred hundred store chain is doing. Um, and, and also there's a lot of people that have been in the industry for a long time and they're, you know, it's, it's a tough industry. They're, they're tired. Uh, they, they want to find an exit. Um, and so that's actually part of our strategy. Uh, we have, we've really built, uh, and have our, our, our grow footprint, uh, fully identified and it's, it's the retail side of things that the actual store, yeah. Uh, where I think we'll apply more of that strategic M&A. So are you actually, is, is the industry, like, is it at the point yet where generational buyouts are happening? Where someone's really like, I want to retire out of the business, but I don't have yeah. a next generation to run it? Yep. No, it's, wow, that it's, is way more mature than I would have expected. Well, if you think about some of these markets, um, so Michigan, for example, I, I'm talking to business owners that have been in some form of it since 2008, you know, they're in their, and it reminds me exactly of my pest control guys that I was buying. They're in their sixties. Uh, they got health problems. They just got divorced. Their kids are well-educated and not doing cannabis, uh, from a, a business standpoint mm-hmm. and, and they're looking to exit. So while, you know, adult use just happened, you know, a little over a year ago, um, it, the, they've been, in the market for a long time, uh, getting beat around by the black market, getting, getting beat up by the regulators, uh, now getting beat up by the, the licensed operators and uh, an exit is something beneficial for them. You've talked a lot about like how the industry is changing and you also talked about how competitive it is, right? And so if you read Peter Thiel, zero to one, right? He says you have to understand a secret about your industry that no one else understands. That's how you get your your monopoly within an industry. So when you look ahead, and maybe you don't want to divulge this on our podcast, but what opportunity do you think most people in your industry haven't realized yet? I think it's it's been a little bit like, you know, the, the early goings of the recreational market has been shooting fish in a barrel. You know, like I, I told the story of, of Illinois going wreck, you know, I could have sold a, a, a burning burning bag of dog poo. <laughs> I, I, if I put on it that it was an eighth, you know, I, I could have sold it for seventy bucks. Yeah, and then people would ask for two of them. So there, there was a time when it was just okay. We got to operate and we got to supply, uh, and the demand's going to be there. I think uh, people are maybe falling a, a little bit asleep at the switch, and, and things are changing as the consumer 
uh, gets more educated and is, is more than just, oh, this is my first gummy experience. It's like, you know, I really wanted a different effect or I wanted the, the, the one-to-one-to-one or the, you know, the five-to-five. I, I think you have to build um, that consumer product, the brand experience that resonates with consumers to, to get them to come back into your store, to get them to come back to use your product. Um, this isn't rocket science. I mean, this, I, I learned this at Green Thumb who I, I thought did a really good job of acquiring building brands uh, that would resonate with consumers to have that replicable experience that people will come back for. The, if you build it, they will come model is going away. And we are beginning to evolve into like a more mature phase of, of a, you know, the, the CPG where you got to do the hard work. You got to actually market and tell people, here's where our store is. This is why you should come in. This is how you're going to feel. And we hope to see you again. Like we're, we're seeing that in our own market. Like we thought, you know, we had a, a lot of ticket because we got our first store near the Indiana border. Uh, and there's, there's other stores that are closer to the Indiana border. Uh, and so we're, you know, we're like, okay, like let's, let's take out that old playbook about how you acquire customers and how you get them to come back to you after they've been to your store once. Do you see a future for the industry where the product is sold outside of the traditional regulated dispensaries? Where it's literally like, you know, at the liquor store, it's at like the fine wine store, it's at Whole Foods. Yeah, I got to put my future head on to, to get to get that far. <laughs> I mean, because um, I, I think pe- people like coming to dispensaries because the people that are selling it are very knowledgeable. Well, they want to talk to the bud tenders. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear all these crazy things from my friends about these long, complex conversations about getting to the bottom of their sleep disorder and one bud tender figured it out. So I, I think the less complex the product is uh, and the more the industry has innovated to make that experience uh, something the consumer like knows is coming and they don't have to talk to the, that bud tender you know, about the, the next greatest strain of flour, um, what the potency is, what the terpenes are. That I think is probably most at risk of, of being sold in a you know CVS Walgreens. I mean, we, we saw the CBD-based lotions were, were being sold. It's, a lot of CBD products are being sold um, in uh, grocery and, and, and retail chains. But the, the more complex things that you know take technical skill and know-how and experience, I, I, people are still going to be coming to the, the regulated dispensaries. So what's the coolest thing happening in the space right now with respect to biotech? In biotech, they're they're finding. I think I, I mentioned this before, uh, where there's there's just a, a massive amount of, of cannabinoids that are in the plant uh, that that are in, in marijuana. Uh, the the biggest one out there is is uh, you know THC delta nine, the psychoactive element. Uh, but there's other cannabinoids that are at trace amounts that can't be uh, mined efficiently and can't get into commercial scale. And there are um, groups out there that are finding ways, you know, to naturally replicate that uh, through scientific processes and plant proteins uh, to be able to find some of these things and make it. I, I guess a, a good example is um, we, you know, we we have outdoor harvests, so we can have uh, bring plants in and extract the THC from them, which is you know twenty to thirty percent of that plant. So that's easy for us to get THC into distillate form. Um, it's less easy to get other forms of cannabinoids that are much smaller amounts. We'd have to extract, you know, instead of a thousand plants, 
we'd have to extract from a hundred thousand plants uh, just to get you know enough usable uh, cannabinoids. So science is coming along saying, huh, you know, maybe there's a way that, that we can do um, that replication um, so you, you can save on on those massive crops, but still have have uh, usable uh, cannabinoids that haven't been used at scale before. It's evolving fairly rapidly. Um, and I think that's something that will be coming on in the next couple of years. This has been super fascinating for me. I've learned so much in the course of this conversation. I wish I knew more about the plant itself uh, because I, we probably could have gotten a lot more technical. Yeah, it's an awesome plant. And you, you are welcome to come out to Michigan uh, to our cultivation to see these things growing because it, it's 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 really impressive. It, it's cool. It's like agri science, agri tech, um, and it, it's you know it, it's a it's a neat experience to see your, your your first grow. Well, I may take you up on that. I'm a big fan of going into food production you know, spaces and just understanding how it works. And yeah, that's that's really interesting. Thank you for the offer. I'll drag Justin with me too. Well, yeah, I'll grab well, a beer after. Absolutely. And so, so Nick, um, Justin. Take some time to plug where people can go taste or experience your wares. Uh, Great. No, our, our first store. So we um, started up 18 months ago um, and our first retail operation is operating in Southwest Michigan. It's in uh, a lake town called Cassopolis, Michigan, which is near uh, South Bend. So it's, it's under two hours from Chicago and uh, we have uh, much better prices than you have here in Illinois. Uh, and better taxes and our selection is killer and we got amazing amazing top shelf flour and also um lots of edibles and and ancillary products uh but it's a it's a cool the store is called sunset coast so it's an homage to kind of the southwest michigan uh appeal of the the beauty of the coast and 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 the, the the sunrise and the sunsets um that we all kind of gravitate toward over there very open, uh, welcoming place and highly educated uh, sales staff to kind of help people through their their journey in cannabis. Excellent. Well, Nick Sayers, thank you so much for joining us today on the Transpost podcast. Thank you, guys. That, that was that was fun. I, I'm glad we got up to six. Hope, I was hoping for double digits, but maybe next time. <laughs> I think you've definitely earned the Cannabis Nick badge of honor. I mean, if Mark gets the Prince of Pie, you should get the Cannabis Nick. I'll take it. Thank you for listening to Transpose. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, don't forget to switch it up a little.